Hello, fellow podcasters. Welcome to the Safasa Podcast, where we discuss various topics around neurodiversity and autism spectrum disorder with self-advocates, program directors, and occupational therapists, families, and clinicians. I hope you enjoy what we have in store for you today. We are joined today by our special guests, Dr. Michael Stolte and Rosh Chandal, as we discuss early childhood intervention programs for children on the autism spectrum. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Pleasure to be here. So since we have two guests today, we were hoping each of you could take a moment to introduce yourselves. Dr. Solti, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm a psychologist by training. Uh, I have a PhD in special education, and I'm the director of clinical services at the Center for Autism Services, Alberta. It's a nonprofit uh, service provider in Western Canada for individuals with autism. Thanks for sharing. And hi, uh, I'm Raj. Um, uh, I'm the proud father of uh, a uh, just about seven-year-old boy. Uh, uh, very talented, uh, smart, and intelligent, and autistic boy. So uh, there I am, um, I think, ready to share my experience so far in this journey. Awesome. Yeah, we're definitely excited to have um, these two perspectives here today and um, discussing early childhood um, and interventions and how that can um, influence children on the spectrum. So yes, we're definitely excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. So as a Radna and I were preparing for this podcast, um, we were curious about why childhood intervention is called uh, like intervention, um, since this term is, you know, typically has this kind of negative connotation towards it as kind of improving a situation where things are not ideal. So what do you think about this uh, term? And is there another way to describe such programming? I'll start with you, Dr. Stolte. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, the, treat, the word treatment, the word intervention, the word supports, these are often used interchangeably, but they do mean different things. Um, I, I, I like the word intervention or support um, better than treatment in some ways. Treatment comes out of the medical literature. Um, intervention to me just means something's not working or something's not right and an individual or their environment requires some kind of support or change in the pattern in which they're relating in order to make it work, uh, make it work for everybody. And so for some children, you know, their parents might be concerned that they're not um, speaking in the same way um, or communicating in the same way as their peers. And so then it's about trying to find a system of support or a model of intervention to help that child kind of communicate their needs or help their parents kind of modify their expectations um, so that uh, the overall goal can be uh, communication and understanding between the child and their parents. So sometimes it's got a negative connotation, but I, th I think if it's done well and if it's done, you know, um, using uh, established models of support, then it can actually be uh, quite helpful um, for those involved. 
Yeah. So all about establishing that support uh, within the child as well as the environment around them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts, Raj? Uh, you know, my thoughts, I thought about this, uh, it probably echoes with uh, Dr. Stolte. Um, I kind of uh, thought a situation in my head. I'm personally, I'm a clinician. So I think of like uh, uh, a patient who has got blood sugar levels uh, just about close to where he can be diagnosed as being diabetic, but he's not yet diabetic. So uh, something can be done at this time, maybe it's lifestyle changes, maybe uh, exercise, uh, maybe diet modification, uh, so that this patient uh, does not get formally diagnosed as being di diabetic. So, uh, so I would say, uh, as a parent, when I'm observing that, you know, something, uh, my gut feel says that something is not right in here, things are not progressing the way they should be. Um, so something needs to be done at that time. You call it whatever, support, intervention, treatment, I don't care. Um, uh, I want my, uh, my kid to maybe start making connections between uh, word and action, and then finally making a connection between action and its consequences uh, is to help him uh, progress through this, uh, through this development stage. Um, where maybe at a later time he does not require that many support if uh, if the the, the um, proper intervention is done at this time um, I'm a strong believer that uh, a dollar invested now could probably potentially save maybe thousands of dollars down the road uh, from the government perspective as well yeah, I, I totally agree with what you've both said. And I like that you said you're echoing Dr. Stolte's response because I do see that um, it seems like the common thread here, regardless of what the language is, intervention or treatment, is that it's really all about ensuring that there is a clear communication between the child and, um, and the parents or the service providers and helping that child, supporting the child to be um, able to do the best that they can do. Um, so I think. Yeah, perhaps our understanding has already been changed because um, it's more about a person-centered care. It's not so much about um, modifying or changing, but it's just about helping that person. Would you say that's kind of um, what you're saying here? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, um, so rather than getting stuck on a particular um, uh, word or phrase, uh, look at the big picture, like whatever needs to be done at this time needs to be done uh, to get the positive outcome to help this uh, kid grow and be a successful citizen later in his life. For sure. And I think that kind of leads us um, into our next question, which is more about what is the goal of specifically early childhood? Why is it that in this early childhood, we want to help and support and how does that differ from other programs in different age groups? Um, you want me to go first? Sure, uh, you can go ahead. Okay, <laughs> okay so uh, how I thought of uh, like uh, at this uh, stage, as I gave you an example of uh, maybe the, the kid needs to start to make an association between word and an action, uh, basically developing his uh, speech and language and and then progressing into getting some grasp on language and uh, speech development into then now we're going into the behavior aspect of like what 
how, what does I do? Like what action does I do and how does it influence other people around me and understanding about uh, his own behavior uh, how does that influence the people around him and what he can change to it, uh, what what he can do in terms of changing uh, his behavior to kind of um, have a successful communication and and relationship with the other people around him um and so uh, so really at early intervention i think it's uh, you can't really differentiate between that we're just targeting speech or language or uh, um, behavior um, or uh, like academic learning, it's all like am amalgamating into one. Uh, going further later, then you can really zoom into like if it's the eight-year-old son, we see that speech and language as communication has improved quite a bit. Uh, it's mainly maybe the reciprocity this uh, this kid struggles with a little bit, uh, making social connection and maybe body language. So you can really zoom in into, well, this is the area that we need to target. Early intervention is basically uh, let's start work with let's start to work with uh, uh, this kid maybe speech and language and then uh, adding the thing as we go on. Right. So establishing first, like what is the communication style mm -hmm. or the initial, um, like initial kind of interest that could help them in their further journey. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, if I if I could just extend on sort of what Raj has shared, um, you know, when I think of early intervention and the value and importance of early intervention, there's a, there's a few different themes. One one is that um, as children grow and learn, skills tend to develop on like they scaffold on previously acquired skills, and those skills become more and more complex over time. And so, if you miss a couple of developmental windows then the longer you miss learning those skills, the harder the um, following skills become in, to acquire. So, so that's sort of like one piece of it. Um, when we see young children who are already showing some sort of developmental delay at two or three or four years of age, then we wanna intervene early before they fall too far behind their peers in some of those skill areas. Um, because we will just want to make sure we maximize their opportunity to practice and learn those skills um, so they don't lose those windows, you know, with their with their peers. The the other the other theme that's really important is just um, neurodevelopmentally, the brain undergoes massive changes uh, in terms of growth um, in the first six years of life. Um, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's 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 pretty dramatic um, when you look at language acquisition, when you look at um, social skills, when you look at um, our motor skill development, our daily living skill development, um, the way we uh, relate to our bodies in terms of um, you know moving our hands and our feet and eating and all those other fun things, right? And so. Um, as the brain's changing and the neural pathways are sort of developing and, and forming, um, we can help scaffold and, and shape those neural pathways through repeated practice opportunities if, the, if they're falling behind. Um, and so that can really help in terms of making sure that um, those supports are provided early on and, uh, and that those children get uh, optimal opportunity to sort of learn those learn those skills and activities, I'm I'm a huge believer in in the focus of 
good intervention to go back to the first question, it should be skill focused. It should be about, you know, helping that child really acquire the critical skills they need. And then, and then also making sure that the environment around them is maximizing that skill development. Because we know that from other literature, right? That kids, they're in impoverished environments or they're in environments where they don't have opportunities to practice those skills. They, they, they may fall behind or further behind. So enriched learning programs are really, really important, um, particularly for young children who've got neurodevelopmental delays. Yeah. And it kind of just highlights how in that very critical period, like early childhood, there's so much that plays with the environment um, and how that can generally just shape how their brain looks and all those neurodevelopmental pathways that you've mentioned. Absolutely. Um, so just to kind of go off in another direction here. So what happens when a certain program is not meeting its intended goal? Um, what would be kind of like the next steps that happen after that? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> you want to take a stab, Rash? You look like you wanted to say. Uh, sure, yeah. I thought about, uh, um, you know, if a goal, uh, you see like the kid is not achieving the goal that you maybe made, uh, maybe go back to the goal that uh, was it really a realistic goal? Was it really a smart goal to begin with? Um, or you made it too vague or maybe too um, maybe you picked up a long-term goal and put it as a short-term goal uh, so uh, really go back review uh, the goal itself and if it was too big to begin with maybe chop it down into maybe five six different steps and uh, and maybe go to step one and uh, uh, maybe have a uh, time frame to achieve that goal and uh, what uh, the, the interventions that are required to target specifically that goal and how uh, are you going to one learn those interventions uh, maybe some of the skills as a parent and uh, uh, then uh, looking at oh, in in a kind of more of a natural environment in day-to-day -day, um, like using all the opportunities in day-to-day -day life how you can introduce those um, uh, those specific intervention just to target the specific goal so that um, i would do yeah i would i would echo um you know those comments just thinking about so goals goals can fail for a whole number of reasons right i mean it um could be the wrong goal it could be the wrong teaching style it could be that the goal is not developmentally appropriate it could be that the the way that the person is implementing a program or a plan is not really paying attention to this child's sort of specific learning needs, or they're doing it in an improper sequence, um, or they're not um, being clear about the expectations, um, or it's just not the right timing. I mean, there just can be a whole array of reasons why a goal may not be, um, uh achieved in the way in which we expect i i think with any you know um young child and especially young children with uh, neurodiverse presentations um you know there's there's a level of complexity there and um i'm i'm a big fan of also just playing a little bit right and and interacting with kids and playing with kids and finding out what sort of their natural interests and motivations and 
what 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 they're excited and about in terms of their learning style and then and then building on that and trying to scaffold kind of skill development around something that they find enjoyable and um and then i think it's sort of a win-win for everybody yeah well that was great to hear um so our next question here is uh for dr Stolpe. um what is the whole process or like timeline look like uh, from first diagnosing a child um, and then starting early childhood intervention programs? Yeah, that's going to vary a little bit from region to region, uh, depending on what part of the country you live in, because um, each have their own systems. But they do. there is a general uh, process, a process that's usually followed, usually uh, parents identify, you know, between 18 to three years, 18 months to three years of age, they start raising concerns. There's something about their child that they notice that seems a bit different or uh, unique. Either there's, um, there's uh, some sort of developmental delay or their child's behaving in sort of unique ways, um, maybe overly focused on um, different kinds of play activities or there's um, kind of unusual rigidities that they're unsure about, or they're not uh, playing with other children in quite the same manner, or having difficulties with other kids. They'll usually bring it to the attention of their um, pediatrician or their family doctor first. And their family doctor usually is the first point of contact to sort of either confirm that there's something there that's worth further investigation, or it's just parent anxiety, which often comes up too, right? I think parents are worried about their kids and they're not sure if, you know, they're a late talker or if they're just um, uh, a little bit unique in the, in the way they relate to others, if this is a concern or not. Usually one of the hallmarks of whether it, it is a concern is you look at sort of developmentally, like, is it quite a ways off um, relative to other kids? Is, is, is that child, the way they're interacting with, with other kids or their parents, is it creating a level of distress um, for the child or their parents? Like they're just, everybody's feeling really frustrated. Um, these would be sort of indicators that um, something may require further investigation. Usually, uh, like in Edmonton here, um, we have specialized multidisciplinary teams that are set up at our at our regional hospital. It uh, so so often um, kids kids will be referred by um, to a multidisciplinary clinic, and then they'll go through a comprehensive evaluation, and uh, and then based on that evaluation, they they will likely get a diagnosis or not or something else, and then if there is is a diagnosis assigned, then depending on the region and the way government funded supports are structured in that region, then they'll be referred for some type of early intervention support, either early education or early intervention, depending on, again, where you live. Yeah. That's interesting. I personally did not realize there was so much regional difference, but uh, that definitely makes sense. There's a lot of um, societal impacts on how services are provided, for sure. Um, Raj, would you say that that sort of process in terms of the timeline was similar? And did you yourself and your uh, family, did they experience any of that parental anxiety Dr. Stolt mentioned? Dr. Stolt, uh, sorry. Yeah. 
I'll tell you my story. So, uh, really, um, to us, by the time uh, my son uh, he was eighteen, he appeared to be developing just fine, and we it was just a visit to the pediatrician. Uh, that she pointed out, you know, when I entered the room, he didn't look at me. He kept doing his thing. He kept playing with the toy. He didn't pay any attention towards me. Uh, so she kind of convinced us to at least to refer him to the Glenrose for further assessment. Uh, and how she framed it, in, and I, I cannot thank you her enough for doing that. Uh, that you know, we can always say no after the referral is done. Um, but if you say yes after one year, you will be behind one year for that. So, so we said yes, okay. Uh, so it took us. I think uh, the wait list was one and a half year at that time. And now I feel I talked to the parents. Um, I think it has gone more than two plus years now. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Uh, you basically you basically went to the Glenrose, uh, had that, uh, I think, couple of days for various assessments, uh, saw the psychologist, uh, saw a speech therapist. Um, I think she administered an outcome measure called ADOS. Uh, and uh, finally, we uh, met with a physician up there who formally diagnosed our son uh, being having uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, and uh, so basically, uh, we were given the diagnosis and the contact to contact FSCD and they said these are your further options. And so uh, came back home, took a while to kind of absorb and then got started with applying to FSCD. Uh, and uh, I think it took us around six months to be approved for the services. Uh, and I think it took us, um, and he was approved for specialized services, which is more like comprehensive, as Dr. Stolte told us, um, not from the diagnosing perspective, but more like therapeutic approach now, um, uh, where you have a team of professionals, occupational therapists, physical therapists, um, um, speech language therapists, and behaviorists as well, uh, where who who provide you the support and the skill training and the teaching and uh, kind of getting started on uh, some of those skill development that are required at this time for that kid uh, to uh, progress further in his life. So, um, but I think it, it takes around two years, give or take, uh, for to be assessed uh, formally. And so, and the trouble is that uh, FSCD, they generally want a formal diagnosis for somebody, some, uh, like a kid to be approved for specialized services and more uh, like comprehensive intervention. So uh, I personally have talked to the parent who chose not to wait for that long. And actually, they went for uh, going privately to uh, pay and get the formal diagnosis so that they can get started early on that intervention path. So. Thanks for sharing your experience. It's uh, definitely interesting to hear that um, as time has progressed, the timeline has increased. And uh, I'm sure that is difficult for families and the children themselves to um, continue experiencing and kind of adjusting to the new experiences they're having. Um, and I just wanted to clarify, when you're saying FSCD, that's the Family Support for Children with Disabilities, right? That's correct. That's yeah. Yeah. In, in the meantime, I would suggest like maybe the when the parents are waiting for 
the FSED approval or formal uh, intervention to start. I personally did. I personally uh, hired a privately private speech therapist because I could see at that time that he's lagging behind. And uh, and as Dr. Strolke told that uh, those first six years are really crucial and. Uh, and the neuroplasticity, that's purely plastic, like you can exploit it to its best at that age. Um, and so I got started with the privately hired speech therapist and we worked with her for quite some time uh, and before finally the center took over when we had a uh, like more of a comprehensive intervention with uh, the center. Kudos to you and your family for um, helping your son in that way and getting him that support for sure. I think that also goes back to how Dr. Stolte had mentioned having that enriched environment is also just so crucial in those uh, formative years. Um, and I think this kind of goes great into this is a nice segue into our kind of next uh, concept that we wanted to discuss, which is um, how so now you your son has been receiving supports for about um, five or six years now, right? As he's seven. Uh, yeah, so he started with the center in 2018, I remember, and he received uh, like the uh, like specialized services for a couple of years, and and then by that time his uh, language and communication skills have progressed uh, uh, to the point uh, uh, that he no longer qual could qualify for specialized services, and uh, so we stopped to uh, receiving services from the center formally, and we moved on to. Are kind of going more into the uh, community social groups like uh, chatter groups with the Khan communication and uh, uh, so that's where I think he's, this year he's going for the second year uh, so that's uh, how the, the formal intervention worked uh, academically if you want I can tell it to you as a little bit more on that so I could see uh, like I'm like I told you, like by, by the time he was three, functional communication was lagging behind. And uh, this guy was uh, counting one to thousand and reading big numbers. And so he was really in big numbers and logos and uh, how do things work. And so, uh, but really I wanted him to drag, well, this thing you can learn later. Maybe let's come and talk. <laughs> so, um, so, but but that pattern kind of continued. He progressed in language communication, but he also continued to progress and do well in his uh, uh, like the formal academic type testing. So he was formally tested by uh, the Edmonton Public School, uh, I suppose it was psychologist, and he tested out quite high in uh, in uh, they do a test called Canadian Cognitive Abilities Test called CCAT. So uh, he uh, he scored quite high, I think, in quantitative aspect of that. And so uh, reading and reading comprehension, he was very advanced. So and they uh, they took him in like the Edmonton Public School. Right now, he goes into a, um, a Lindwood School, and the program is like uh, gifted and talented program. So uh, that's where like academically how he's doing. That's so exciting to hear that um, in all aspects of his life, he's able to flourish and receive that support and um, find things that he's interested in and really engage in that. So, and it's also really exciting to hear that he's graduating into the community programs and getting to engage with his peers. I'm sure um, that's definitely something that's exciting for you as parents to see as well. Um, 
Yeah, this uh, social aspect, like he has uh, friends from the last school and they're still having play dates. And so that, that, that aspect is going as well. So, yeah. That's very exciting. Um, and that was kind of actually one of the things Cindy and I were curious about because we've read a lot of papers and heard a lot about research that's showing these signs of are showing demonstrating that early diagnosis and intervening at that early age um, for children with ASD does contribute to the major long-term positive effects on both symptoms of ASD and then also the later life skills. Um, and so it seems like Raj, you've pretty much stated that there has been these really positive impacts, um, but both to Raj and Dr. Stolte were curious, would you say that um, the, these benefits are coming about because of the early childhood intervention, or would it be some other factors such as supportive family or perhaps even medication, or as we've kind of already alluded to, perhaps even a combination? Um, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I, I think it is a combination of all of these different pieces coming together. Um, one, one, of the, one of the philosophies that I strongly endorse is that of a multidisciplinary perspective and involving a wide array of professionals in um, some of these programs and some of these kids' lives because I'm continuously amazed what a physical therapist will see versus what a psychologist will see versus what a speech language pathologist will see or an occupational therapist. And, and so it's, um, and so it's just really important to have a whole range of perspectives on uh, involved in, in, in the child's life, including really high quality early education, uh, including a lot of parental involvement, family involvement. Um, I think, I think 20 or 30 years ago, there was more of a focus on just you know, trying to teach a, an individual child skills divorced from their natural environment. And that's really not a great model. I mean, it, uh, you know, really, really skills don't really matter unless you can use them in everyday life. Right. And, and it's so lovely to see um, children using their skills when they're interacting with their siblings, when they're interacting on the playground. When they're when they're talking to their parents, um, when they're able to communicate their needs, and um, and then slowly grow from there. Um, so yeah, it's it it it's uh, it's neat to see neat to see them grow up that way. Um, one thing I did want to add is that um, it's very difficult at the front end of any early intervention program to actually predict um, how children will respond. And, uh, and this is what, there, there's a debate in the literature right now, you know, do, do, should early intervention be available to all children with a diagnosis, or should you only provide early intervention to those children who are showing significant delays? It's not really settled, that literature. Um, and I don't really know what the answer to that is, but I, I have seen some children, they just, they just take right off, you know, you provide some supports and they really acquire those skills very quickly. Other children are much more moderate and then other children, it's very long, slow and steady. Um, and um, I think they all deserve the kind of support they need uh, to thrive. Um, and that's not gonna be a one size fits all package. Yeah, 
Um, it has to be individualized. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And it seems, yeah, like that individualized programming that's like very tailored to a child specifically in terms of like their skills and their interests and just generally what they're good at, what they like is just so important to these early childhood programs. Um, and so my next question kind of uh, follows up on um, having this individualized program from a community or a private provider. How does that influence transitioning into what we would call like more so a neurotypical space, like standardized schools? Um, yeah. Why don't you go first, Raj? Sure. I'll quickly comment on the previous uh, topic that we were discussing. I would say, um, um, so in terms of providing early intervention, I would say it's of utmost importance that the parents are uh, a huge part uh, in implementing the skills and the strategies they learn. Uh, I'm a big believer, like, like you see a clinician um, in one session, uh, spending time with your kid, uh, telling you, is the strategies that you need to work to improve it could be whatever language or communication or behavior uh, if you don't uh, if you're not able to apply those skills and strategies that you learned in that session in more of a natural environment you're not going to see much of a change by the time the clinician comes for the next visit right so you'll see the growth between those sessions so those sessions are just to kind of, okay, we came up here, let's take it to the next step. Let's take it to the next step. So uh, as a parent, you got to uh, dedicate yourself at that time, 100% um, uh, if you want to see uh, like a good progress at that stage. So, uh, so that was my comment on the last question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So absolutely. I was just gonna say that I, really resonate with that comment about consistency, right? That the positive outcomes are only as good as um, as good as you are when you're practicing them and continuing yeah. to keep it up. So yeah. I think that's a great kind of comment to that question about, is it from yeah. early intervention? Is it from family support? Is it from medication? Like you're saying, it's just all about that consistency, right? Right. Yeah, great comment. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. Uh, so now coming to uh, your question about uh, uh, the, the, like the uh, provision of uh, individualized programming, and then uh, like how do they how does it help in transition them into the standardized public school space, right? So uh, I would say um, if the kid has uh, uh, improved to the point that they can express themselves well, uh, they have basic skill to interact with the neurotypical peers. Uh, absolutely, they should be exposed to, or uh, they should go to more of uh, in their community uh, schools uh, where they have uh, standardized curriculums. Uh, more interaction they have with their neurotypical peers, they get a chance to model their language, uh, uh, communication, um, like the behaviors, uh, more opportunity to get, uh, they get to kind of um, be a part of that 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 system uh, and requiring less and less support as as the time goes on. Uh, so that that would be my comment on this. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all again, right? Like there are 
So some schools are better equipped than others um, in terms of providing the right amount of support for a, a neurodiverse child, you know, in terms of their, lear their learning needs. Um, I have seen... I have seen some kids, you know, they, it, it also depends not just on the school, but on the teacher. It depends on the size of the classroom. It depends on the teaching style in the classroom. It depends on the subject. Um, I know some children, they really like some, some uh, classes, say like music or physical education or language arts or, or mathematics, and they, may, and they may totally dislike those same subjects by another child who's autistic, um, you know, because of the sensory or because it doesn't fit with their own skill set. Um, and so you really, again, have to tailor it um, a little bit to that child's unique learning needs. Um, one, one of the, um, I, did, I did a literature review on this a while back, and one of the interesting themes that stood out for me was a sense of belonging. Do children feel like they belong in, in, uh, in typical learning environments? And often what makes them feel like they belong is if there's other neurodiverse children in that school as well. Other, other children with unique support needs, learning needs um, that are represented in the school as well. And so that they're not the only one. I think if you're one in a class of, you know, 30 or 50 or 60, it, it, you know, that, that you, you stick out a little bit, but if there's three or four um, kids with a, with a range of learning support needs uh, in a classroom and uh, they've got the right mixture of teaching supports in, in that situation. So there might be educational assistance or there might be a modified kind of classroom environment or, modified rules and structures so certain kids can kind of leave with break cards or stuff like that um you know then a lot of those kids really thrive um you know in 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 standard school settings uh, just because it's a standard school setting doesn't mean that it necessarily won't be a good fit yeah. i think that's really interesting because i've also um read some articles about how neurodiverse individuals um can communicate or collaborate with other neurodiverse individuals better without the uh, the influence of uh, neurotypical people kind of giving them the systems on how they have to communicate or how they have to um, engage with material. Um, so I, I like how you mentioned like having that sort of representation and having just a general neurodiversity in a classroom is going to not just help the neurodiverse students, but potentially even expose the neurotypical students to kind of these new perspectives and make those students as well more open-minded and inclusive. One comment uh, I'll make, I could see like my son when he was in, was receiving PUF funding, he used to go to a preschool uh, through the center. So uh, the, there was an aide always with him at that time. So towards later in the year, he started to become like, a little bit kind of getting away, like why she is with me all the time, like he could see himself being singled out that way. And now going to the school later where there was maybe one education assistant with the three, four other kids, uh, he never objected to or he, he kind of stayed there and said, okay, she helps others, so others as well. So she never, uh, like he never uh, kind of objected to that. 
yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear that perspective from, um, I guess, almost like your son's perspective there, right? That he feels included in that aspect within the classroom as just another member who's receiving support from, it's not just one support person for him, but it's for everyone. Um, And I think that goes back to kind of how Dr. Stolte had mentioned, depends on how the schools will set up their, um, their supports and their resources. And um, I guess it always goes back to funding to how the schools can uh, receive sort of the resources. Um, but I'm sure. glad that um, our Edmonton public school system definitely, I know, has some great resources and even modified learning spaces. So um, that's interesting to hear. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I would still say like if as a parent, if you are uh, like if you have a, a neurodiverse kid, I still go talk to the principal, assistant principal, what support, sort of support they can provide in kind of including him and helping him learn. Um, and that will help you to make a more of an informed decision. And that was one of the decision, that was one of the things that influenced my decision. I felt that my son is being better supported in the school that he's right now in uh, compared to a community school that um, uh, he was earlier going in. Yeah, if I could follow up on that, I, I think it is hard for parents um, because they often have to make decisions on behalf of their children with very limited information. And and not all schools are the same, right? Different schools have different emphases. Some are more focused on athletics. Some are more focused on environmental studies. Some are more focused on social justice or the arts or whatever, right? And so... Um, Having having a school with the right philosophy that has the right fit for your child um, is it's really important, but I think it's not always easy to tell at the front end. And I, I would fully support what Raj is, is sharing, that this idea that as a parent, you should feel empowered to go in and talk to the principal, ask some hard questions. Don't be afraid to, you know, see how kids are interacting in the hallways. And, and ask yourself the question if you feel like your child would really fit in in this environment. And if not, that's okay. You know, there's other schools. Yeah. Yeah, definitely seems like a process and of, uh, you know, going and seeing different schools and just trying to pick out the best one and the right one, because um, ultimately it's for your child, right? Yeah. All right. Um, So we're going to switch gears a little bit here, but we talked a lot about the benefits of early intervention programming, but we also want to kind of address the other side. So are there any like disadvantages or challenges of like your child, Raj, receiving intervention? Uh, uh, One, just a diagnosis can bring a lot of anxiety and uh unknown uh, like really you feel that you've lost control over um, uh, your life and so then you like once you get the diagnosis you go and start doing uh, google has got everything so you got to start doing your research and not not anything good comes out with that uh, diagnosis uh, i'd say most of it um, so that's one big con that uh, takes a lot of uh, energy on parent uh, on parents part that that would have uh, gone to actually supporting the child and maybe uh, getting the services started and what like whichever professional needs to be uh, involved at that time uh, so so that's a big con getting the diagnosis itself uh, then the uh, early intervention 
uh, i would say um, my son uh, he actually had uh, kind of follow ups from early interventionist from alberta health services when his pediatrician kind of pointed it out but really i won't call it kind of more of a intervention in terms of the they didn't specifically target anything so really look for uh, maybe even if it's called the intervention are you really getting any therapeutic support at that time and um, and so that's a con um so once the intervention has started we were fortunate to like i i i went to the center because they had uh, they 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 could promise or their model was like that that they had an aide who could work come and work with the kid for 3 4 times a week i suppose so really give that intensity that was needed that i feel that was needed and that will give, give us an opportunity uh, to kind of learn those skills and techniques to help with their son uh but 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 if you see uh, it's a big time commitment and learning commitment on parents part so that's the uh, and and not every parent are in the same situation and probably me some parent maybe work longer hours maybe are out like two weeks and they're back home like after uh, for a week so uh, so so that uh, that's that can be a con I also talk to some of the parents who actually uh they felt that after even after receiving one year of specialized services uh they were seeing some improvement but to them it was uh, they just felt that um the time that they are putting in that's they didn't feel value in putting that time in terms of so you know uh my elder says our kids are like that things are going to be okay you just you just fretting over something you should not be bothered too much and so uh, so those could be some of the things that could uh, affect yeah dr stolty what are your thoughts on this and also have you like seen families who are hesitant in starting a new program yeah i i mean there's there there things can go sideways in so many ways um with with early intervention i mean the time commitments that raj is talking about um can be a huge obstacle and uh a challenge for a lot of families particularly if both parents are working and uh you're balancing out the demands and support needs of your other children or your other obligations in life um to have all of a sudden this new um requirement uh, expectation uh thrown upon you without you requesting it can can seem like a bit of an intrusion and it does create um some distress and anxiety for some families in terms of trying to balance out all of those demands um unfortunately early intervention particularly for autism is also full of a hodgepodge of um i would say uh high quality interventions to very low to no quality interventions <laughs> um and it really depends on the skills of the people that are providing the support the government expectations around funding being attached to models of accreditation models of training models of fidelity and so forth which may or may not happen in a particular region 
Um, so parents sometimes do get really negative experiences because they get very poor quality intervention supports or poor quality uh, trained staff. And then they may jump to the conclusion that all supports are a waste of time. Um, that can happen. Um, I also think because of the, the heterogeneity of autism and the, and the various support needs that can be there, some children require high intensity, some moderate intensity, some low intensity, and then that ranges as well across skill areas. And so it really, it's a bit of an art form to figure out how to individualize the right model for this particular child and this particular family in this particular life stage to make sure that it's a good use of time and resources for everybody involved. And that doesn't always fit well with government policy because government policy is kind of designed, you know, all three-year-olds get this, all four-year-olds get this, all five-year-olds get this. And that doesn't really fit very well with, with autism. So it's, it's always a bit of a, you know, it's a, it is a bit of an art form to make sure that the right mix is there for everybody. And then also knowing when to transition to something else. I think some, I, I hear um, some parents they, they really like the intervention. Um, they feel like it's a really good support model, but then it sort of takes over their life and they can't imagine life without the intervention. And that's not healthy either, um, to have this feeling that you can't parent your own child or you can't just be a family without all these other people involved in your life all the time. And so again, those are conversations that you have to sort of work out with the professionals, with your child, with your spouse, you know, with your other family members to try and find that right balance, um, which is not always clear cut. It, it really isn't. Um, but yeah, there definitely is some um, negative parts, not negative aspects of intervention as well. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that you highlighted the balance for that, for sure. Um, yeah, go ahead, Raj. I think you might've had a comment. There's one quick comment that uh, like uh, once you get the diagnosis, you get started, uh, just to hang in from there, your relationship with your spouse is going to be tested at that time. So just hang in there. Uh, take some time for yourself. Keep communication open. Uh, this is not a 100-meter sprint. This is a marathon. So you're just getting started. Uh, take time. Plan. Uh, breathe. Mm -hmm. That's exactly kind of where I was going to go from there is that as Dr. Stolte mentioned, there's a lot of family dynamics that can influence early intervention and then even early intervention influencing the family dynamics. So I was actually going to ask you, Raj, did you, um, did you feel that um, as you've kind of progressed along with early intervention now moving into um, kind of like childhood intervention and I guess more into like teen and um, into the future, do you think, or how has your family dynamics been influenced and um, how do you feel you've been involved in that? And um, yeah, just what, what's your experience with that? Uh, so definitely after the diagnosis, it was uh, researching a lot. Uh, I even learned about those outcome measures like ADOS and maybe, maybe picking up uh, some information from what they do, be it like imitation or uh, joint attention or whatever, like these are some of the skills that uh, I need to work with my kid on. So first, uh, first two years, really exhausting, pretty much 
thinking, working on uh, that aspect all the time affected, definitely affected some uh, some relationship with my spouse as well at that time. But we kept the communication open. Uh, for sure, I'm that type A personality. I'm and. I'm going to be spending all that time and energy into this. I want the best at that time. And now when I, I feel much, of, much at ease uh, seeing him uh, progressing and uh, doing so well, uh, for sure, I've let go and let, uh, uh, let, let the teacher do their job and uh, let, let everybody uh, in the community, uh, wherever he goes, uh, their family members, uh, of course, they're very supportive. Uh, but I've kind of let go. I can relax and take it easy. I can. I see him doing well. For sure. And Dr. Stolte, how do you feel about parental involvement in intervention? I know we've touched a little bit about having that consistency between intervention and then going home. Um, but do you have any comments on how parents can um, be involved in early childhood intervention? Yeah, I, I mean, they should be involved in all stages and as much as they can, um, and recognizing that they also often have jobs and other activities they need to do. Um, but, you know, the big, I think the pivotal pieces are really around the goal setting and the planning. So making sure that um, everybody's on the same page in terms of what they're trying to accomplish with the intervention. Um, being clear about where they can play a role and talking to professionals about that. So they don't, they shouldn't, they shouldn't feel the pressure that they have to do it all, that they have to be the interventionists themselves, but it's about sort of um, helping to guide the ship, so to speak, like knowing kind of their own families, their own dynamics, their own child's needs, identifying those areas that are creating maybe some difficulty in the family routines or activities or what that might really um, improve their quality of life. Um, thinking about the bigger end goals, uh, participating wherever they can. Um, and then also just celebrating their child. Um, you know, like I think sometimes you can get caught up in intervention and, it's, and it feels like you're always focused on change or improvement or, you know, um, and it's sometimes it's okay to just be, you know, your child is your child and that's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to necessarily change anything at that moment. Um, you know, you accept them, you have fun with them, you play with them, you nurture them, you enjoy each other's time. And then um, if there are things that do need to be adjusted or shifted, then you do that, but you do that without, without a huge sense of anxiety that if it doesn't happen exactly the way you want it, that um, everything falls apart. Yeah. For sure. Um, I like how you mentioned it's, it's really just a team, right? The parents are involved and the clinicians are involved and even the child is involved in that team. So um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So to end off, Dr. Stolte, Raj, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? I feel like you should go first, Raj. <laughs> uh, I would say um, um, you got to uh, challenge your son or daughter, in, uh, in so that they 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 continue to learn and progress to at their at their level. 
and also to continue to support them with their challenges so and and take time for yourself for your family self care is a big part if you feel better you of course would be able to support your son or a daughter in a better way so yeah i i would echo that raj just the sense of um you know autism is a unique condition um which i think brings about an array of uh opportunities and also challenges and um and so it starts by just uh learning to celebrate who your child really is and some of the unique qualities they'll have for their entire life um that's not something you want to get rid of um in fact you want to enjoy it celebrate it help them sort of actualize it in some way find out a way that they can use their gifts and and right. um contribute to their their communities and their peers um i think it's really important for parents particularly at the front end to really connect with other parents um connect with others that are on the same journey um particularly those parents who have gone through some of the previous stages um because i i don't think it matters what jurisdiction you're in there's a huge array of different kinds of support models and acronyms and government funding structures and hidden doors and all of these different um pieces of information that you have to navigate and um it's very difficult to do it on your own looking through google um it's much easier to connect <laughs> with with other folks who have gone before you and i think they'll also help uh give perspective alleviate some of the anxieties and fears that can come about when when parents hear that word autism sometimes it means different things to different people yeah. and it can create a sense of panic and um don't panic it's uh mm -hmm. you know lots of there's lots of autistic kids that are doing just fine and thriving and um uh, they still may require supports but that doesn't mean it's the end of the world so just just uh celebrating their child connecting uh looking for the strengths and then um uh i yeah i would say and then also just taking the time to um be with each other um and not getting so caught up in the change all the time. Yeah, definitely. No, that was really great to hear. Yeah, thank you just so much for giving us your time today and insight. I definitely learned a lot and I think our listeners will too and it was just incredibly an exciting and interesting discussion. And I'm yeah, I'm also very grateful that you guys could both share and um as Dr. Stolte mentioned, um just share the experience so that others know they're not alone in these sorts of experiences and that people have gone through it and as you said there's there's definitely um very successful stories and um every child is unique and can be celebrated for sure thank you so much for your time today thank you so much really appreciate the opportunity thanks sandeep um, nice meeting you dr stolte again yeah absolutely mm -hmm.